0: Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton.
1: Hi, I'm James.
2: And I'm Faye. Today we're delighted to welcome Matt Gooding, managing editor at Tech Monitor onto the podcast. It'll be really interesting to get his perspective on the general tech landscape, um things that he's interested in and also his views on Cambridge tech now he's got a much broader remit. Hi Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast with us today.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. It's really, really great to be here.
2: Well, I'm really glad that it's you that's here today because what no one else realises is just before we started recording, I fell off my chair.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Faith for a while and I think she was overwhelmed uh, to be in my presence again. That's it. So,
2: that's yeah. exactly it.
1: I think you're underplaying it. You didn't fall off your chair. You kind of fell off your chair in slow motion. It took about 20 minutes to actually hit the ground. <laughs>
2: Oh, my goodness. Honestly, only Faye can do these kinds of things. So, yes, as I say, Matt, it's it's great it's you and not someone I've never met before, because at least you know what I'm like. So, um, what have you been up to?
3: Well, it's been a busy few months over at Tech Monitor. You know, we're a website which covers tech news for an audience of IT leaders, basically. We call them tech leaders, but really it's people who work in senior roles in IT and in tech companies. And as you guys will well know, it's been a really interesting time with the whole AI revolution driven by the launch of ChatGPT, GPT and I think the sort of slightly surprising boom in those kind of generative AI systems that that's driven. So, yeah, it's been a real, like, real busy week for us and for myself and for the team. But, you know, it's a really exciting sector to be covering for sure as a journalist. I mean, there's tech cuts across everything in society, right? You know, from the way we live our lives, the way we work and all the sort of issues in between. So, yeah, busy times, but really, really interesting, really interesting challenge.
2: And busy times for you as well. You've been there a few years now and you've gone from journalist to editor, haven't you?
3: Yeah, I've worked for Tech Monitor since 2020. So I started off as a reporter and then I was promoted to news editor and then I've been working as managing editor since last summer. So different challenges, obviously, uh, sort of managing the team and uh, setting the agenda and the kind of stuff we cover, which is really interesting for me and uh, yeah great to be part of a company which is, is really interested in tech developments and the way that impacts society. We're part of the New Statesman Media Group, which obviously publishes the New Statesman and various other B2B titles in, in different verticals. So yeah, it's a, it's a good place to be at the moment.
2: Excellent. And you you mentioned a couple of um, areas you've been working on, and I think they're some of the things we want to delve into, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned AI there, Matt, in your introduction. As you say, it's kind of impossible not to come across AI in the headlines right now. Well, I mean, we'll we'll maybe get into some specifics, but big picture, what's your take on where we are right now? Are we only just at the start of something? Uh, You know, what what do you think the potential is here?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously you guys both work in tech and you know a lot of things get hyped up and turn out not to be as big as 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 people say but i think in this case i think the hype is probably quite well founded and i think uh, someone sort of compared it to being the victorian people at the start of the industrial revolution and i feel like that's where we are as a society with ai this is going to have big implications for for the whole for everyone basically we mm-hmm. saw this week that the ibm ceo was like we're going to use AI to maybe replace 7,800 back office job roles because it's becoming so efficient and so good at doing those kind of menial, repetitive tasks that might have otherwise been been done by a person. And I feel like whatever industry you're in, you're going to feel some impact of that. You you know, your job role is going to change. Things which previously were a massive burden and a massive time drain are going to be taken away, hopefully. It's so weird because... Nothing's really changed in the last year in the sense that the model which which ChatGPT is built on has been around, as you guys know, since 2020, I think, but suddenly it's just captured everyone's imagination and the, yeah. the big tech companies are getting involved and everyone feels like they need to be hopping on board this this train, as it were, the AI train. And now that that's happening, I think we've started something which is is going to have profound implications for everybody. I don't think that is... An overstatement. Some of the big the big predictions about AI are, are going to come true. I think so. Yeah.
1: In some ways, unfortunately, the, the, the IBM news was framed as job losses because it, yeah. it kind of plays to the the national media stereotypes yeah, of the right. threat of AI. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's huge opportunities around productivity gains yeah. and redeploying people into yeah. you know more value added tasks right and as you say using the ai to remove some of the more repetitive work
3: yeah that's right and i know as a journalist i used to spend hours transcribing interviews like if i interviewed one of you guys and we chatted for an hour i would take my recording back to the office i'd put my headphones in and i would manually type all that out that's like half of my day taken up but now i can put that into otter ai or any other transcription service you like or my phone does it automatically for me while i'm recording and that's hours of work saved just like that and that is a real like tangible benefit of ai in my work that won't take a job away from a journalist but that will mean that i can use my time to do more productive stuff like you say to do more of the value add which i bring to to my role and i think you're absolutely right there's if it's framed as ai is going to come for your job then i don't think that's accurate for most people but i think ai is going to change your job and i think there's no getting away from that but hopefully the way in which we implement that as a society and as businesses and as governments will be in a positive manner.
1: When I mean, you reference the Victorian situation, you know, and, and I think history is full of these kinds of examples where new technologies come along and there is that concern. But I think, I think you're right. It's very much about, you, you just need to understand it. You need to understand the use cases in your particular field of work and get familiar with it yeah. and, and see how it can age you rather than see it as
3: a threat. Yeah, absolutely
2: progress and how people use it and it? its the adoption of it so just thinking about that there's also in the press there's, a, there's the negative side of it when we did the live episode of um, the podcast at Cambridge tech week one of the subjects that we talked about with the panel was how we get checks and balances in place to minimise the impact of technology in the wrong hands, I specifically mean. So the adoption side of it is one thing, but what can we do? Because a lot of us were at the start of the internet and we were questioning whether the checks and balances have ever been in place. And what what do you think needs to happen now? Because things kind of seem like they're going to snowball a little bit.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think that the comparison with the early days of the internet is quite a good one. And I think, I think the cat's already out of the bag with AI. I think you see like a few weeks ago, you had Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak and all these people signing a letter saying, right, we need to pause all AI development until we can work out what the moral and ethical implications of these systems are. But you can't do that. That's not a realistic thing which can happen because even if Europe and the US say, right, no more AI development for six months. China aren't going to stop, are they? Or other, whatever other country is is interested in this technology. So I think the only way that you can do it really is that we need regulation, which is appropriate, and we need regulators to move quickly to to do something about these technologies and to put guardrails in place for companies like OpenAI or you know Google or whatever other tech giant is developing these these models, which can have unpredictable and harmful outcomes if they're not managed correctly. And I think we're seeing. In Europe, in the US, and in the UK, like moves towards that to greater or lesser extents. And I think it's really important. It's a sort of age old story in tech, isn't it? The regulation never moves as fast as tech development. But this is an area where it's really crucial that policymakers need to get a handle on this technology. They need to understand what they're talking about. They need to be decisive and put some rules in place around how this technology can be used, what people can do with it, what sort of data can go into it. And yeah, I think that's the only way you can do it. Whether that will happen or not, I am less certain and I think there's good intentions like with a lot of the regulators to do something about it, but it's such a specialist area I think to ask yeah. some of these regulatory bodies to come in as we're doing in the UK, you know, to ask like the Competition and Market Authority or the Financial Conduct Authority or whatever to manage the impact of AI in their sectors is is a big ask and I don't know whether they'll be be up to it to be honest. So. I'm not sure that was a good answer, Faye or not, but um, yeah, I feel I've, I think regulation is the only way to go, but it needs to yeah. be like well informed regulation it needs to happen quickly, otherwise this technology will get away from us, and there won't be anything we can we can do about it really, if that hasn't already happened,
2: yeah, absolutely, just picking up on one of those points, do you think that policymakers are getting a little bit more savvy or do you think that they're still playing lip service? Because now they're bringing in more business people, like you say, into those discussions. I'm, I'm kind of thinking, are we tipping a, tipping over a little bit now where they're going, actually, we really need to be more knowledgeable about these things?
3: I hope so. And maybe we are. And like, you see things like in the US, you know, see Sam Altman, who's CEO of OpenAI, saying, we need the regulators in the office with us they need to see what we're doing. They need to see... The decisions we're making and have an input in that. And I think that would be an interesting innovation. I don't know whether the, the US authorities um, will take him up on that or not. But I think here, the government's approach is very hands off and very like, you know, they call it pro innovation. I don't know if that's right, to be honest. I've, I think that, you know, you hear the good noises coming out of the government. I think since the current regime has been in charge, I think they have got a better story on tech and they're, talking more positive and more informed terms about tech but I think the proof will be when the regulation happens and when we get some big controversial incidents around AI and its application and the sort of potential negative impacts on that whether that talk can translate into into meaningful action you're right I think there's promising science but I think it remains to be seen whether that will that will translate into sort of meaningful change on that sort of at that governmental level
2: yeah so maybe we need a call for for the likes of George Freeman who's in the science tech and innovation. Organisation, I can't think what the proper name is for it now.
3: DSET, yeah,
2: yeah, that's it. There's <laughs> a, um, there's a, a lot of information being pushed out there, yeah. but it's really the celebration rather than, yeah,
3: that's right, what's actually being done to progress think, things. And I think that's a frustrating thing as someone who we cover a lot of government tech policy, like not only the big things around AI and quantum and blah blah, but also the sort of lower key sort of policies which affect people who are running tech teams and running tech businesses, things like the IR35 regulations around sort of contractor pay and stuff, which were going to change and they weren't going to change. Now they're not going to change again. And that's all in in the space of like six months. These are things which have big, like, as I'm sure you guys know, big destabilizing effects on tech companies. And it's all very well talking the big talk and saying, we're going to have the world's next Silicon Valley in the UK, as Jeremy Hunt is prone to saying. But if you can't do the basics right, if you can't show what your tech policy is, if you can't have a consistent tech policy, if you keep doing things which are harmful to tech companies and to tech teams, then it's pointless having the big ambitions. So the last few months we've seen, I think the government's getting better at talking about tech. And like you say, having someone like George Freeman, who I've met a couple of times and who is obviously very knowledgeable about this area in the in the team is, is, is good, but they need to make sure they do the basics right and the policies which they're sort of implementing aren't aren't harmful and there's quite a few examples going through the you know going through the legislative process at the moment which the tech industry really don't like.
1: So with such a focus on tech in the UK and the need for government really to get better connected and representative of what's happening were you surprised by the recent decision around Tech Nation kind of being disbanded and from a public funded organisation?
3: It's difficult because I think so I've worked with Barclays Eagle Labs and I think they do some really good work but I think that having a sort of neutral kind of body there in the centre of everything in my opinion is preferable to having a commercial organisation there because as much as they'll say oh this is very separate from our banking activities can't be entirely separate can it they are they are a company that relies on getting other companies to to bank with them so yeah, I did find that a little bit surprising. I think whether there's a case for, there was a case for reforming Tech Nation and changing it a little bit, the programs it delivers and the way that it delivers those programs, I think there probably was because I think from my dealings with TechNation, some bits of it worked really well and some bits of it didn't work really well. And there was quite a focus on getting volume of companies through their programs, which that's probably what they were being judged on and what they had to do. But I'm not sure that that was beneficial to the the tech sector as a whole. So... Tech Nation was probably right for reform, but I think binning it off completely was an interesting move and probably not what, what I'd have done if I'd been in charge.
1: Hmm, interesting. Okay, well, let's um, let's change sectors now. Uh, I know that um, you monitor the semiconductor industry really closely. We've been lucky enough to have people like Scott White and Eben Upton on the uh, the podcast over the last six months. What's What's your view on the state of the UK semiconductor industry? <laughs>
3: Wow, that's that's one of my favorite subjects, James. Very exciting. Um, Yeah, I think this is one of the policy areas where the government's really dropped the ball because we've seen around the world the crucial importance of semiconductors to different economies. And obviously during the chip shortage in 2021, which followed the pandemic, a lot of industries were disrupted because they couldn't get components. And, you know, that's really focused the minds of policymakers everywhere in the US, in Europe, and everywhere else that we need to ensure that we've got reliable supply and we're not too reliant on these, the very small handful of producers in Southeast Asia who currently make all the chips, all the advanced chips anyway, TSMC and Samsung and a, a couple of others. So I feel like we've seen in, in the US and in Europe, we've seen semiconductor strategies and semiconductor subsidy programs. In the UK, we have not seen anything yet. We were promised a semiconductor strategy two years ago. It hasn't materialized at the, at the time of recording, but it's due out any time now. But I feel like, from talking to people in the industry, they've really sort of been waiting on that for so long to get a bit of certainty around the sort of conditions for for chip companies in this in this country. We've had a parliamentary inquiry into the semiconductor industry, and a lot of the the businesses that spoke there said we're being offered big subsidies to move to the US, and unless we get some some certainty around the conditions in the UK, we're going to do that. And I think. Um, uh, Pragmatic, who you spoke to, or one of those companies who are like... Simon, Simon at Paragraph as yeah, well, as Paragraph, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. So who guys who speak very eloquently, who obviously know their stuff and who want to stay in the UK, but who cannot do that or who say that they will not be able to do that without some certainty around how the industry is going to develop. So I think it's good that it's going to finally be published, hopefully. And from what we've heard about it, the focus on chip design which is obviously a big strength of ours you know I don't need to tell anyone in Cambridge about and, but also other companies like Imagination and, and Graphcore and people like this I think that's really positive I think that shows an understanding of what what we're good at here because realistically we're never going to become a chip making powerhouse like Taiwan or the US or China or whoever so we need to play to our strengths and accept our place in the world so I think that's potentially good but I think the delay is really unacceptable I mean Darren Jones, MP, who chairs the the base Committee in Parliament, called it an act of national self-harm. And I think that's <laughs> it's quite an apt description because this has been going on for two years that so we haven't had this strategy. We haven't had this clear direction for what is a really crucial industry. And until we get that, I feel like a lot of the companies who I've been speaking to are, are in limbo to a greater or lesser extent.
2: So when we were doing the Cambridge Peterborough Independent Economic Review and the whole conversation around levelling up, we talk about Silicon Fen. And, and a lot of people in Cambridge don't like the association Silicon Fence, Silicon Valley. But, but actually, if we could do something on the semiconductor industry and we can utilise areas, for example, Fenland, where we do need to level up, you know, something like that just seems, you know, I know it's oversimplistic, but actually there must be an ability to do something that ticks a lot of government agendas.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I feel like, one of my previous jobs uh, was working on the Cambridge-Norwich Tech Corridor which is obviously looking at economic growth uh, through tech in the area between Cambridge and Norwich and you look at those areas along that A11 corridor that you know have great skills in manufacturing which are a bit underutilized and under promoted and that was something we tried to do through the through the Tech Corridor program but you you think about the intellectual sort of capabilities of Cambridge and the the design prowess you think they should be a way to link all that up and say, right, we can do some advanced manufacturing in areas where there's already a strength of that. And it doesn't have sort of the challenges that places like Cambridge and London and Oxford face in terms of the cost basically of getting office space and and industrial space and things like that. So it'd be nice to see some kind of focus on the sort of manufacturing we can do here, which is not going to be realistically the volume which you get in other countries, but could be looking at smaller, um, smaller volume manufacturing around things like power electronics and compound semiconductors, which is where our research is really good. So, yeah, I, I think that would be a, a massive opportunity, but whether it's something which will, will be pursued, we'll have to, have to wait and see.
0: High-performance computing and AI is being used to positively transform society and the environment, from powering applications that support vaccine research to accelerating our response to climate change. KO Data develop and operate sustainable and energy-efficient data centres for advanced computing. Our scalable state-of-the-art architecture supports the mission-critical workloads of life sciences, biotech and AI startups in Cambridge. To find out how we can reduce your digital carbon footprint, get in touch at kodatacom contact. KO Data, proud to sponsor the Cambridge Tech Podcast.
2: Back in April, I think it was, you were talking to Rishi Sunak, Business Connect event, and you know, posing many questions to him and and, and, um, opportunities. So I guess we've talked about the semiconductor industry. Where else do you think we've got good opportunities in the UK?
3: So I think like, I think quantum computing is another really interesting one, because we have a lot of academic strength in that area in this country, like compared to other countries. And I think it's also an industry which is at quite an early stage, which isn't already dominated by enormous companies like the US sort of hyperscalers, Amazon, Microsoft, and so on, who who dominate a lot of lot of areas of tech development. Quantum computing is not like that, and I think there is space for for smaller businesses to to make a big impact. And I think that is one area where the UK government over like. Ten years has done a lot of good work. There's been speaking to people who work on quantum computing. There's been a lot of good funding programs which have been well-targeted, which have helped to grow the skills base, but also to fund research into the different types of quantum machines that are out there. And you see companies like Cambridge Quantum, I think you've had them um, before, yeah. haven't you? Um, and River Lane and people like this in, in this area alone. There's tons of them around the country that are developing interesting machines, different ways that this technology can work. And... Uh, yeah, and securing big contracts now is something which is coming, becoming a you know a business reality, not just a not just a science project. Basically, particularly in o- industries like automotive and financial services and things like that. So, I feel like that's a great area of opportunity for the UK. They've just launched a quantum strategy, which was delayed as well, which uh, you know again highlights the problems we've talked about. But nonetheless, it's out there now. It's been quite well received by the industry. And they've got a good track record in quantum. So I think that's one particular area where, because the industry is at such a nascent stage, I think that's an area where the UK could potentially, I hate to use this phrase world leader, because that is what the government say about everything. They say, we're going to be a world leader in this, we're going to be a world leader in that. And we're not, realistically, we're not going to, because you have to sometimes accept your size and your place in the world. But this is an area where we genuinely we have world leading skills and translating that into, into business success and a real sort of being a real cornerstone of the of the sort of quantum economy is something which will be a challenge for people who work in that, that technology, I think.
1: So, so building on that train of thought, a, a similar but slightly different question. You talked there about the opportunities for the UK. What, what do you think in your your experience is unique about the UK tech scene? You know, where, where do you think we differentiate uh, against other global countries? Uh,
3: yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that it's the sort of early stage tech development and research is where we really stand out. And obviously... I don't need to tell anyone in Cambridge about that, the sort of the amount of core pieces of technology which have been developed here in this this small city and small sort of cluster of companies is is quite astonishing. But not just here, obviously in Oxford and then in other parts of the country as well, you have that real sort of, um, that real academic base and sort of translating that science into, into applications which can become businesses and can help society and things like that. So I feel like across kind of deep tech and biotech, research and development we have a real strength and we need to play to that strength i think the the frustration is that sort of scale-up point isn't it that you get to a certain stage it seems and companies either sell out to a bigger player from abroad or they can't find the funding within the uk to take that next step so i think where we can stand out is with our research and with our development of products and continuing to utilize the academic base that we have but Mm. then the challenge is to is to take that next step without seeing all our best talent like move abroad or yeah things like that
1: definitely feels like there's a huge opportunity for uk universities yeah to take a real lead in this space
3: yeah absolutely and i think you you see the sort of collaborations that that form in in cambridge and in in other parts of the country these are people from around the world who all want to be part of that and they want yeah. to they want to connect into to the uk academic side of things because it's so world leading in a lot of areas uh, to use that phrase again but that's <laughs> you know that's that's something we can really build on and that's something we should we should be shouting about because it that's pretty unique to us i think
1: now this week's cambridge tech news in partnership with business weekly cambridge and london-based deep tech vc firm iq capital has wrapped up its fourth venture fund worth 200 million dollars which takes their assets under management to more than one billion this enables iq to deploy capital at multiple stages and they're investing an additional 30 million into individual companies as they go international. Their portfolio companies have shown potential to dominate their respective markets on a global scale. And the portfolio includes leading deep tech companies such as Speechmatics, Thought Machine, Paragraph, Porotech, and Nyabolt. Check out our second ever episode of the podcast, which features an interview with Porotech. Congrats to Kerry and the team at IQ, Kerry being a valued judge for the Trinity Badville Prize. Our second story features Quantinium, the world's largest quantum computing company. They have announced a series of exploratory projects with HSBC to exploit near and long-term potential benefits of quantum computing for banking. And these projects include cybersecurity, fraud detection, and natural language processing. Now back to the show.
2: Just going back through your history of Cambridge, you know, you've gone from business editor Cambridge News, you've done the stint at Cambridge Norwich Tech Corridor, you're now doing your current role in in a completely unbiased way. Have, Have there been any standout companies and people for you that you've been watching over the years?
3: Yeah, there's been a few interesting ones. Like, I remember going to meet CMR Surgical, like when they were quite early days. And I interviewed Martin Frost, who was CEO at the time. I don't know if you guys probably know him. And he's great. Like He was a brilliant interviewee. And he said at the end, he was like, we're going to be Cambridge's next one billion company. And I was like, okay, that's a nice line. Is it going to happen? Not sure. You're in a bar now on Maddeny Road. Uh, It was a bit of a shambles. But obviously now, like, look at them. Like, they're you know, they're putting surgical robots in hospitals around the world. Like, probably one of the the most successful Cambridge companies of recent years. So I think that's... I feel like I've seen that company like I remember getting their first press release, which like two paragraphs like we've raised like a million quid or whatever. And I was like, Oh, surgical robots, this sounds interesting, but obviously no detail at all and to see where they are now is 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 really fascinating. I think the companies that I like from around here are the ones which really sort of tie in all the Cambridge strengths, so the sort of deep tech and life science. And I'm really sad not to cover life science as much as I used to, because it's just so fascinating and the, the stuff which people do is is incredible. But I feel like name check one maybe like bios who do neural interfaces between sort of like digital technology and sort of uh, the brain to kind of diagnose things i think and stuff i hope i'm not getting that wrong but anyway i remember meeting them like in the early days as well i met emil and um and ollie um and they were telling me about the company and they're talking about like cutting people's arms off and putting robot arms on the thing obviously like a student project and now like that's a company again which is doing really important work that's obviously worked on its proposition it's refined and honed it and it's doing something which is having a real impact so i think for cambridge i think that kind of marrying up of like the deep tech expertise and the sort of the massive like life science sort of sector that we've got and all the finance and the the knowledge that goes into that sector i think that's that's a really interesting opportunity and uh, that sort of convergence is 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 always fun to cover for sure
2: you should do what we do. So we say all things tech. So actually, we don't <laughs> mind whether it's biotech, med tech, That's deep right. tech, any kind of as tech. Long as it's fine. Fix tech
3: to the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. As long as it's yeah.
2: tech-enabled, then I okay. think you know that way we get to showcase an awful lot of the the broader yeah, work absolutely. that goes on that goes around the road here.
1: I don't think I can let you leave without asking you a question about journalism and and the future of journalism. (laughs) Um, I mean, we we started the conversation with AI. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that AI is going to lead to certainly an increased volume, not necessarily quality of content that's going out there. I mean, what what's your thought for kind of journalism moving forward? Are you seeing the pipeline of talent coming through? you know, the impact of technologies, you know, fact-checking, the lack of awareness of trusted media brands. What's your take on all of that?
3: Yeah, I think it's, I think journalism, like a lot of industries, is really at crossroads. And I am um, i don't know what the future holds, to be honest, because the a lot of the revenue models that it's been built on over the years, particularly around advertising, has just completely like fallen off a cliff. And like, I started my career in local news, and that is in a quite a bad way like not you wouldn't know we have the Cambridge Independent here which is a great local paper but that is not uh that is not reflective of what's going on around the country you know a lot of local papers are closing down or not producing content which is serving their community well in my opinion so I think that there I think there'll be space for there's always going to be space for like good quality journalism but I think the way that people access that has already completely changed and I think it will continue to change and I think the sort of interesting thing for me of the last couple of years has been how newsletter platforms like Substack have yeah. grown in popularity, and you see individual journalism. Individual journalists are monetizing their own expertise mm. through that platform. They're saying, "You, I have, I know about this subject, and I have contacts in this sector which no one else has. Mm. So I'm going to put out my own publication, and you know people can pay for that if they want to, or blah blah blah." So I think, uh, I think. We're probably going to see that trend continue i think certainly in the in the near future um but in terms of the sort of volume of content that's created and the sort of accuracy of it i feel like the volume is going to continue to go up and the accuracy is going to get lower and uh. that is going to be a challenge this particularly as you get more ai generated uh. stuff we've seen a few publications um fall foul of that already particularly in the tech space and um that's going to be a big challenge for regulators how you sort of control that and how you how you show the reader what is what has been generated by a person what's been generated by a machine and whether you'll be able to do that effectively i don't know so yeah it's definitely a it's definitely a very interesting time for journalism and publishers and i think ai will have as big an impact on our industry as as any other really
1: well, all power to the journalists out there.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> That's what I like to hear.
2: <laughs> so, so how how was that for you? How is it us asking you questions rather than you always asking everyone else yeah, it's questions? A bit
3: weird. I don't really like it. <laughs> I'm feeling unnerved. Uh, yeah, it was good. It's really fun talking to you guys. And um, when you sent the questions through, Fay, it gave me pause to think about a lot of the things, which yeah. some of the stuff which we've been covering in recent months, but some stuff which had you know which I hadn't considered. So yeah, it's been a really really great too
1: great and the, the comedy icebreaker falling off the chair was I mean, just uh, it was a perfect segment. I'm
2: just just—I'm just glad I managed to stay on my chair the I, whole way through yeah. and there was a moment halfway through I started to get a bit of a giggle like oh god I'm so embarrassed I uh, to, but I managed to hold that in as well I
3: have to say when I was anticipating how this would go I did not include Faye falling <laughs> off her chair as oh part of my prep but I'm glad it happened and I'm glad you're alright
2: it's that you only you, that's special for you Matt I'm not going to do that for <laughs> anyone else okay <laughs>
3: Truly a truly a memorable edition of the podcast. But yeah, uh, thanks. Well, we recorded the video this. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, thanks, Matt. Thank you for having me on. It's been yeah, great. great to see you again. Cheers.
0: Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on Cambridge Tech podcast.com If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a 5-star review. It will really help others discover the show.
2: If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.